Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies, part of the New Books Network. My name is David Fauser. Today, I am joined by Tim Jelfs, author of The Argument About Things in the 1980s, Goods and Garbage in an Age of Neoliberalism, West Virginia University Press, 2018. Professor Jelfs, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Let's dive right into this. Uh, This is an argument about things uh, in the 1980s. And I wonder if you could uh, begin by outlining the the main points of the argument as you see them, and if you could give us some indication of how you wanted to make some interventions into contemporary scholarship, uh, what kinds of problems you wanted to solve or at least address. Yeah, uh, thanks very much. So the title of the argument about things um, in the 1980s uh, is intended to identify uh, what I characterize as a long-running debate about the proper place of things in American life um, that I think is traceable uh, through the long durée of uh, American cultural history, really uh, from the Puritan era um, onwards. I mean, arguably, it goes even further back than that and can be considered an import into uh, America from um, European uh, culture. What I mean by the argument uh, about things in American life is this kind of constant uh, uh, contestation over uh, hundreds of years um, about uh, whether or not the United States is somehow a uniquely materialist uh, nation or, on the other hand, is in fact a uniquely kind of anti-materialist um, uh, nation. I think this debate has uh, animated uh, American uh, cultural uh, discourse with varying degrees of intensity um, uh, across the long history of the nation. What I want to suggest um, uh, by adding in the 1980s to that title is that uh, the, the decade of the 1980s represented a moment where this uh, long-running argument about things reached a peculiar pitch of intensity in political discourse. Um, and I think also in the uh, scholarship on this period, both in terms of historiographical scholarship and um, uh, literary studies. My own background is originally as a, a literary scholar, and the project started out uh, as an examination um, of some really quite minute details or some fine details of aspects of literary texts of this period. And I noticed the extent to which they seem to be keyed into, engaged with, and really intervening in um, this same long-running argument about about things that I think is so characteristic of American cultural history. So the book um, developed from uh, a more... F- narrowly focused literary studies work into a broader uh, cultural history that considers uh, both how 
this argument about things intensified uh, in the 1980s and how culture and literature of the period can, I think, best be understood, at least insofar as it represents uh, material things and does engage very closely with material things. I think the literature and culture of the period can best be understood as offering a, a, a kind of complicating intervention into that argument about things itself. To help us position this more broadly, can you give uh, an example of, say, each side in this debate from uh, sort of deeper in American history so that we can uh, maybe get a little bit firmer ground underneath our feet? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the um, the earliest uh, uh, citation I have is from um, uh, John Higginson's uh, 1663 uh, election sermon, A Puritan Preacher, who was haranguing um, uh, his fellow settlers. Um, As he points out to them, it concerneth New England always to remember that originally they are a plantation religious, not a plantation of trade. (coughs) Worldly gain was not the end and design of the people in New England, but religion. So there you see in around the middle of the 17th century, a frustration on the part of this Puritan preacher that what's supposed to be, I think, a at least um, through the in the preacher's eyes, uh, a holy spiritual and redi- uh, religious um, endeavor has taken on the hue of a, a kind of uh, materialistic uh, um, project of uh, acquisition. And in fact, for a lot of the settlers, of course, that's precisely um, uh, what it was. They were had relocated to this uh, uh, part of the world, were dispossessing uh, the indigenous uh, populations um, for uh, material gain. Um, Perhaps another example um, from a a much earlier period in uh, US history than the one I spent most of of the book considering comes from the middle of the 18th century, when in New London, Connecticut, a revivalist preacher by the name of James Davenport organized a bonfire of uh, the vanities, um, this kind of religious rite that uh, is familiar um, uh, from the history of 15th century Florence, but then was reenacted um, uh, in the New World by this guy, uh, James Davenport, who threw in you know any material things that were deemed excessive from wigs and clothes and jewellery to certain books. Uh, And of course, there's a very strong link there uh, to the period that I later consider because, um, you know, uh, one of the kind of landmark uh, social novels of the 1980s was Tom Wolfe's The Bonfire of the Vanities. And I think that title uh, itself and the kind of prehistory of um, the importation of this uh, ritual uh, to the United States gives you a flavor of, of just how deeply rooted the argument about things is in American life. And and so you want to argue in this work then that this particular debate, which has these really deep roots, um, reaches a particular kind of intensity, a particular pitch in the 1980s. Um, what exactly do you mean by the 1980s? How do we how do we put boundaries around this uh, this period of time? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I I I address that in the um, in the opening pages of the book because um, for me uh, there's a there's a 
there are various starting points that we could um, uh, look for when we try to ask ourselves when exactly the 1980s um, began. The the period that I cover here spans really roughly from about 1976 uh, to uh, 1991. I start in the middle of the 1970s because there we have a... Um, a decade in which the United States found itself in what was quite evidently a, a material uh, crisis as it battled, as it was battling by the mid uh, 1970s and certainly by the end of the 1970s, uh, a terrible problem uh, with inflation that, of course, had uh, material uh, uh, roots in um, the oil price and the various uh, oil shocks that occurred. Um, uh, throughout the 1970s. So whilst I demure somewhat on the question of when exactly a decade like the 1980s began, I suggest that it must have begun sometime in the 1970s um, because it was around this time that we see um, a significant uh, reordering, a reconfiguration of uh, global capitalism as we, each, as we reach the end of the Bretton Woods period and uh, after the Nixon shock of 1971, uh, uh, the United States goes through two further um, shocks, two oil shocks, which sees the, um, the price of oil uh, uh, spiraling as political um, events in uh, the Middle East take a, a complicating turn for the worst as far as the United States is concerned. But by the decade's end, we have President Jimmy Carter um, intoning on uh, national television, somewhat similar to the Puritan preachers that I've uh, already uh, mentioned, his uh, sermon about how um, uh, the American people have learned that uh, owning things and consuming things uh, cannot fill their, uh, cannot satisfy their, their desire for, um, uh, for meaning. So, that uh, is a moment I, I, I figure um, coming uh, as, a, as, a, as a 1970s kind of segue into the historical um, uh, 1980s, where this um, age-old argument about things um, in American uh, life really does reach, if not a pinch of, pitch of new intensity, then certainly it becomes kind of front and center stage of um, American political discourse with the sitting president um, uh, intoning in this televised uh, uh, address, um, his his message that you know the meaning of um, uh, the meaning of American life must lie uh, deeper uh, than things, as he puts it. And and then we get to you know as a as a sort of later boundary to this, we have George W. Bush, uh, who will somewhat later kind of weigh in on a similar topic. Yeah, that's right. I mean. It's it's a remarkable, um, uh, I think, um, evidence of uh, the kind of discursive impact of Carter's speech, which I mean, historians have examined uh, in some detail and tended to show that um, whilst it was well received to to begin with, it um, was quickly labelled as a um, malaise, as the uh, infamous malaise speech of of Carter, and was. Um, um, soon seen as uh, a, a reason for his declining uh, uh, approval. But 
Um, if you look, if you look at um, Reagan's presidential, or if you look at Reagan's rhetoric in the presidential um, campaign in 1980, he he picks up on uh, this kind of um, thing focus uh, uh, language, and you know explains explains to uh, President Carter that it was their shirts that the American people uh, were losing, and the fact that. Um, Carter had obviously hit some kind of nerve, I think, is is clear from the fact that once um, the first President Bush then takes over from Reagan after two t- terms of Reagan, um, if you if you look at the language that he uses as he accepts the nomination, then ultimately um, uh, uh, wins the presidency himself, he reflects he, he reflects back, you know, f- from um, uh, the perspective of over of you know nearly ten years later on the language that Carter used in that 1979 um, speech and asks rhetorically, you know, have we been too invested in material things? It's an interesting um, question for a vice president of Reagan to have asked um, at the end of the 1980s, given that decade's reputation for um, uh, materialism. And it's perhaps no surprise that Bush actually... um, answers his own question and says, no, we knew in our hearts um, what really mattered. We weren't all that invested in material things um, uh, after all. So the book ends um, uh, at the end, towards the end of uh, the first uh, Bush's um, uh, term. And I end the book um, in some respects where I uh, began it with his a speech he made um, following uh rapid U.S. victory in the in the first Gulf War. Um, it was interesting to me that that period, that, that, that approach to periodization, um, uh, you know, takes the story right back to where it began, um, really, with the uh, messy politics of oil in the Middle East. And, and, you know, with these really fascinating bookends of people questioning to some extent, uh, you know, Americans' relationship with things, uh, through the 1980s, a decade that is known for its, uh, you know, really opulent kind of materialism. It's also a decade that is often associated with the development of neoliberalism. And, you know, that, that plays a crucial part in, in your story here. And I wonder if you couldn't give us a, a working definition of neoliberalism. You can, you can keep it short uh, or long as you like. Uh, but then consider, so, so if we have neoliberalism in the 1980s, you can maybe then transition into what were the particular conditions that facilitated neoliberalism's ideological triumph in the United States, at least to the extent that it did. At the moment, there's there's, there's a lot of um, uh, interesting debate about the, the merits or otherwise of using this term um, neoliberalism, and I think the best way to explain how I'm using it is to say that I use it as a as a periodizing um, marker. The subtitle of the book is Goods and Garbage in an Age of Neoliberalism. And when I examine that period from, you know, the mid-1970s to 1991, I'm interested in it as a phase in in what I think it's useful to think about as a longer history, the longer history of the age of um, uh, neoliberalism. For me, what I I mean there is the mid-1970s marked, uh, the mid to late 1970s, I should say, marked the moment where um, neoliberalism really ascends as um, an ideology, and what the ideology consists of, in in, in you know uh, quite basic uh, terms, for me is 
uh, a way of thinking about markets and the place of markets in uh, political and, and, and social uh, life. Um, this ideology, um, of course, had been nurtured um, throughout long decades of a kind of intellectual um, policy hegemony of uh, a kind of Keynesian liberalism um, that uh, was more or less regnant from the kind of New Deal era until um, uh, the US economy really um, enters the crisis periods of uh, the 1970s. And, you know, it's a... Its ideological opponents refer to it as something like free market fundamentalism. It's a call for a return to um, uh, ideas that we would associate with um, uh, the laissez-faire approach of uh, late uh, 18th century thinkers like Adam Smith. Um, I'm thinking about the way that um, the economist Milton Friedman um, advocated precisely that and was advocating precisely that as a, um, as a member of what Philip Morosky calls the um, uh, neoliberal thought collective. Um, uh, he'd been, Friedman and, and thinkers like him, Hayek as, a, as another one, had been um, advocating a, a return to what they saw as a, a kind of um, a truer form of uh, uh, liberalism away from the big government new, new deal liberalism of the middle decades of the of the 20th uh, uh, century so um you know that's 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 how i'm uh, i'm using it it's not intended i mean i'm aware of some of the kind of contemporary um uh, debates about the use of the term it's not really intended as an epithet or an or an insult so so much as a, as a way of attempting to name a period in history when a certain way of thinking about politics and economics has been dominant um and i would also add that you know it's it's it remains dominant to um uh this day so when i think about um this period from 1976 to 1990 uh, uh one which i um uh, characterized at times as the long 1980s um, it's important it's important to to consider it just as a, a phase in this longer history of an age of neoliberalism which arguably has still not come to an end indeed and and so we have then you know as we get into the heart of the book we then have this frame of neoliberalism uh, along with the frame of you know clear material changes in the American economy and the way that these things are interacting at a cultural level and, and are sort of rendered through a wide range of texts. And as, as we move into the heart of, of the argument here, I wanted to sort of pull out a few of the key ideas and a few of the key texts that, that really struck me as I read the book. And I think, like, uh, first off, the, one, the, one, the first place I'd like to stop is uh, the film Blue Collar from 1978 as, as a way into one one aspect of this conversation about stuff. Could you tell us about that film and, and how that fits into your argument? Yeah. Um, Blue Collar is a, a, a movie by um, Paul Schrader, um, who many of us uh, know as a, a screenwriter for um, Martin Scorsese's uh, Taxi Driver. And uh, it's a movie uh, set in a uh, um, checker cab uh, auto plant in Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan, and focuses on the um, uh, lives of uh, three workers in that uh, plant and the 
kind of strained um, friendship uh, that they uh, experience as they um, encounter um, material troubles of one sort or another, although not exclusively material troubles of one sort or uh, another that, that we kind of associate with um, uh, and clearly ref- clearly reflect some of the economic uh, conditions uh, of the moment. Um, two of the characters uh, uh, are black and one of them is uh, is white. Um, one of the one of the uh, lead characters is played by um, Richard Pryor, um, and uh, the movie opens with him having various kind of beefs uh, with um, uh, union leadership in the in the uh, auto plant. Um, initially, in fact, his main problem seems to be the fact that he has a broken locker, and uh, they refuse to um, uh, fix it and, uh, and, uh, and attend to it. So. Um, I think initially we get the sense that um, uh, you know he has the feeling of being tr- uh, being treated as a second class uh, citizen within the the ranks of the uh, of the workforce. Um, but at one stage he utters um, a line that I think is really interesting in retrospect. That you know he tries to explain that um, it's not his uh, the level of his wages which he's complaining about at one point but it's the prices that they um have to have to pay for for goods i mean it's a great comment about the um uh inflationary um conditions uh uh of of that particular uh uh period you know he says he i, th- I think he says word for word something like it's not the wages um it's the prices there's also a remarkable scene. I mean, the, the basic, the basic uh, plot of the um, of the movie is is it shows how the class solidarity that seems to be enjoyed um, uh, by these uh, three workers comes under um, great strain, um, partly around the basis of of race, which is eventually um, kind of deployed as a weapon to um, uh, set worker um, uh, against worker in a more kind of uh, uh, individualistic rather than uh, uh, class solidarity um, uh, based struggle and what they attempt to do these uh, uh, th- three guys because they're facing various um, uh, material problems at the time various uh, financial shortages um, as they uh, attempt to rip off their own um, union with only very limited success they find out um, that uh, in the union safe that they break into, there's actually very little uh, in cash, but they do discover um, that the union it, uh, it, itself is corrupt en- enough to have had um, uh, an illegal uh, uh, loan operation going on. Uh, they attempt to blackmail the union with um, bad consequences uh, for all of them. And it's 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 a fascinating uh, cinematic um, uh, depiction, I think, of um, working people under strain right on the cusp of this period that I'm um, I'm interested in. There's a scene right in the middle of the movie um, after these these three guys have spent um, uh, uh, spent the night um, partying various illicit substances, and they're left kind of. Um, hung over and coming down, slumped on the sofa in one of their uh, uh, living rooms. And um, 
there's a fascinating kind of articulation of uh, alienation as they sit there and, and, and kind of muse upon their problems, including the fact that um, uh, all the consumer goods that they've been encouraged to buy, you know, the washing machines and um, uh, the various domestic uh, appliances uh, are ultimately um, shit, as one of them uh, calls them, and just a means for um, uh, keeping them um uh, kind of hooked on uh, on credit, so um, I think that's a perfect kind of um, exemplification of uh, one form that this argument about things can can take, where that kind of um, insight into the fact that the, the the goods of this advanced consumer society in the late nineteen seventies um, are recognised as both goods and uh, at the same time as you know worth as garbage, just um, uh, shit that we're hoodwinked into into paying for um, uh, 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 for you know to, to kind of keep the system uh, going, even though these guys are struggling to survive within that system. And so, so this would be a film that you'd say would sort of roughly agree with Carter's position that, in fact, um, you know, that, that goods are not really the the key to happiness, or that or that goods have been sort of overrated. And and in this case, it seems that that the goods are to some extent, uh, I guess, indicators of a system that seems an institutional system that seems sort of rotten to its core. That is, the union is corrupt. Um, they, you know, clearly the systems of political economy that can get them junk appliances in exchange for a lot of debt is, is not one that is going to bring anybody any real happiness or any kind of real human satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. Although, you know, at the the same time, um, I guess the problem I have with the Carter speech is it, is it, um, uh, I always think of it as constituting a kind of spiritualization of a of a material crisis, and um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to suggest that the the uh, the guys in the movies are just in the movie are just kind of uh, the the dupes of a of a uh, consumer society that brings no one any um, happiness because they're also you know the um, uh, exploit they exploited. Um, laborers of a system of uh production that was um being put under strain because of the squeeze on uh profits as far as capitalists were concerned and that was then going to lead i mean was about to lead really um to the acceleration of um uh capital mobility that saw more and more manufacturing plant within the united states um uh you know shipped either to either out of the Northeast and, and into more um, uh, union unfriendly territory in the South of the United States or else um, uh, across the Southern border and into Mexico. So, I mean, there's also this um, uh, in contemporary uh, political discourse, there's also this kind of nostalgia for that moment where um, there were still the kind of jobs available where people could um Earn, at least feel like they, they, they had the chance to um, earn the goods that kind of ca- come to characterize the sense of um, 
the American dream or the good American uh, life of the mid 20th century. So in a way, blue collar, I think, see, you know, shows what what it looks like and what it feels like for that system to start coming unstuck and um, coming undone. And yet, you know, for all that, because for all that, I wouldn't want to um, underplay the way the movie um, uh, depicts these guys' material struggles as 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 real. Um, one of them, uh, Jerry, played by Harvey Keitel, um, has a, a a second job outside of the plant. Um, he's a gas station attendant. Uh, he's struggle. He's still struggling to make ends meet as well, and. Um, uh, is unable to afford the uh, uh, braces that his uh, teenage daughter needs to correct some problem with her teeth. And in a remarkable scene in that movie, he comes home um, to find her mouth all bloodied um, uh, because she's tried to fashion her own uh, tooth braces, um, you know, out of uh, metal for herself. And, and that's actually the kind of precipitating moment for Jerry to make the decision that he's... Um, uh, he's going to uh, rip off the union. So we have this moment of a real transformation in the history of capitalism and people's experiences within it. But we also have uh, something like Michael Lewis's book, Liar's Poker, which really shows us a, a dramatically different aspect of this process. Uh, and this is a book that was, uh, I believe, also made into the film uh, or inspired the film Wall Street. Is that correct? Um, I don't. I don't know if that's um, uh, necessarily, necessarily the case, but it, it could very well have been an influence on um, on Oliver uh, Oliver Stone um, when he made Wall Street. Can you can you tell us about about that book or or the film as you as you want to deal with those two particular texts and and how they show us a different aspect of this process? Yeah, I mean they're really fascinating to consider uh, alongside. Um, uh, blue collar, right? I mean, if uh, blue collar can be uh, interpreted as a, as a kind of depiction of the, the kind of dying breath of um, uh, the kind of um, productive ca- capacity of uh, certain sections of the United States in the middle decades of the of the twentieth century um fewer um, the point my point being that you know as we hear often today fewer and fewer um uh, u.s workers uh, as proportion proportionally are, are engaged in the business of manufacturing of production of actually making things and uh if we sat alongside um blue collar um a book like liars poker that was published in the middle of the 1980s um we see uh, a reflection of the process of uh, financialization that um, the United States economy was going through and what has happened, uh, part of what has happened subsequently to the industrial structure um, of the nation as a, um, fi- uh, a finance, insurance, and, and real estate sectors of the economy become proportionately far larger than they had ever been. Um, Liars Poker... Uh, is a is a nonfiction memoir in which uh, Michael Lewis, who's gone on to write a, a series of well-known nonfiction books, reflects on his own experiences as a um, ridiculously young um, uh, uh, Ivy League 
uh, graduate who gets hired by an investment bank just around the time that the kind of exotic financial products that would eventually lead lead to the disaster of uh, uh, 2008, the financial crisis in 2008, um, just around the time that those those products were 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 taking off, um, and you know he depicts a um, a finance industry uh, on the verge of of becoming you know supercharged the way it, it is. Uh, uh, Today and accounting for ever greater proportions of uh, the U.S. Um, economy, um, he, he subsequently explained the purpose behind the book was to warn uh, fellow Ivy League uh, graduates um, off making the same mistake as him and, and going to work in the financial markets in uh, Wall Street or London. He was posted to London for uh, for, for some part of his um, career. As well, and he was shocked to find that this book, which he thought was going to be an expose of the um, outrageous successes of this emerging finance industry, was actually kind of read by some as a kind of how to get ahead in finance guide. And then he found himself having to respond to all these queries from um, graduates or soon-to-be uh, graduates asking for, from him for advice about how he should. Um, get into to finance and Oliver Oliver Stone's Wall Street I think um, is uh, a similar um, cultural document in a way that you know this was obviously intended as a kind of savage critique of the emerging power of the financial sector in the US um, economy the Michael Douglas uh, character Gordon Gecko infamously says greed is good um, echoing the words of uh, Ivan Bosky, a, a, a Wall Street trader who was um, imprisoned for inside trading during uh, the 1980s. You know, this guy is supposed to be a, 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 a kind of satanic um, uh, villain, but I think he was, um, a, again, to Stone's surprise, taken as a kind of um, uh, anti-hero and a model for, for, for many to... Uh, emulate, and so what we have then in in these two or in the, these two sets of cultural artifacts is we've got we've got different aspects of this profound transformation of the American political economy in the 1980s, and and this leads you then in the book to consider what you call uh, the aesthetic rendering of everyday consumer goods and how they functioned and how they were interpreted across a, a range of texts. And you have a, a wide range of, of sort of examples to draw from here, including the art of Jeff Koons, uh, the music of the Talking Heads, uh, the novels of Don DeLillo. And uh, could, could you sort of discuss what, what you see here as the aesthetic rendering of these goods and, and how, this, how this changes or, or perhaps how it stays the same? Yeah, um, that... That that uh, chapter um, um, evokes a, a, a word from um, art history called uh, ropography, to uh, which describes a representation of of trivial things. Um, so it's a kind of um, uh, connected to the uh, still life and its kind of repertoire of. Um, uh, objects, the objects in a cafe, for example, that, um, that kind of thing. The whole chapter focuses on the different um, 
on the different ways that um, uh, these kind of small, trivial, everyday objects, sometimes mass-produced um, consumer goods, um, are represented across, as you say, a, a kind of range of uh, cultural artifacts. And the point I wanted to make, um, uh, if I could, in that in that chapter, is that I think um, artists and, and writers of the era were, were depicting um, the uh, objective rep- repertoire of, of you know real American life in the 1980s in a way that's actually kind of far more um, varied and at times um, more more skillful than um, certain cultural critics have 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 uh, uh, given them credit for, and certainly more nuanced as, as well. I mean, I start with the case of um, Jeff Koons, who uh, I think is a kind of a problematic case study for, uh, has been a problematic case study for a lot of um, art, uh, art critics in, in later years. And I start with early um, exhibitions of his from the late 70s and early 1980s, where he just, um, he'd present, you know, encased in perspex, consumer goods like uh, uh, vacuum cleaners and other forms of uh, domestic appliance. And um, what I wanted to argue with um, Coons is that uh, I think I, th- I think you know, working in the in the tradition of um, Andy Warhol, and perhaps working somewhat too deriva- derivatively in that. Um, tradition that early artwork is um supposed to put us um as viewers in a in a state of genuine ambivalence um about the you know the the aesthetics um and uh the value or otherwise of these kind of consumer goods and i i i try to stress the ambivalence as much as as possible because i find in a lot of the um critical literature at the time um which itself of course is kind of part of the broader argument about things the the debate tends to slip into a kind of binarism where we assume that or we want to assume that uh, a writer or an artist is uh, doing one of one of two things either they're um uh kind of critiquing the uh consumerism uh of the age or they're themselves you know falling prey to the kind of vacuity of the consumerism of the age i mean there was a lot of critique in the 1980s of the um enormous sums of money that um were uh the works of art were going for um in the art market or in the publishing industry, for example, um, the enormous uh, publishing contracts uh, and advances offered to to young so-called Brat Pack writers um, like Brett Easton Ellis and, and Jay McKinney. And uh, what you see is um, with, um, I think, all of those examples are kind of uh, a desire to either con- condemn the artist for materialism um, or for kind of falling falling prey to the vacuity of uh, uh, consumer culture, or instead the opposite tendency, 
which is to insist that in fact what the artist is or writer is doing is um, is, uh, is themselves critiquing or satirizing um, uh, that um, uh, consumer culture. And what I want to argue in the case of Kuhn, certainly, uh, and also in the, in the case of some talking head song, and, and definitely in the, in the work of Don DeLillo, is that I think a, a, lot of the, a, a lot of the kind of aesthetic power of that art comes from the, the radically ambivalent view it takes of these things, that it does not simply dismiss them as trash or garbage, but gets us to think and uh, look again at um, the perhaps surprising or uh, remarkable um, beauty of some of these everyday goods. That's something I see in the early work of Jeff Koons, um, for sure. It's something I see in the uh, representations of... um, uh, consumer life and supermarkets in the mid 1980s work of Don DeLillo in a novel like uh, 1980, uh, like uh, White Noise. Um, you know, I think there's a genuine fascination on the part of uh, DeLillo with a kind of peculiar aesthetic aura um, that seems to be exuded in the kind of from, from the mid 1980s um, supermarket. A lot of literary criticism of the period seemed to almost desperate to um, ventriloquize its own kind of um, anti-materialism and to, you know, position DeLillo as as, as simply um, savaging contemporary uh, consumer culture through satire. And to me, it's I don't want to, I'm not trying to argue that there is nothing satirical about these texts or they, or they don't, um, um, uh, in, in in interesting um, ways, you know, uh, expose some of the peculiarities of 1980s consumer culture. But I do want to argue that their aesthetic power lies in the fact that they also take these goods seriously, and they think and the, and 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 that we should, I think, take the aesthetic representation of these goods um, uh, seriously, not completely seriously, but um, uh, you know, ambivalence is a key word. Um, here, and I see that I see a similar um, ambivalence in operation in, um, uh, you know, the lyrics of certain um, Talking Heads uh, songs of the era. By the late nineteen eighties, for example, um, David Byrne was writing a, a song like um, "Nothing But Flowers," where he kind of envisages the regreening, the ecological regreening of um, uh, America, a kind of um, repastoralization of the American um, uh, landscape, and uh, ends up saying that he misses um, he misses the Dairy Queens and Seven Elevens, um, and that you know he he misses um, all those things that have been uh, uh, traditionally kind of um, despised or traduced about. Um, everyday American culture. And there's a great line in that song where he uh, sings, if this is paradise, give me a lawnmower. <laughs> the, the ecological dimension to that, I think, is, is a great segue to, to another, another element of, of the sort of ambivalence about stuff uh, that we see about goods, and and I want to I want to turn the discussion toward garbage. Uh, you know the the other one of the other components of the of the title of the work, and to do that I, I want to read kind of a long uh, 
block of text from the book itself, but I think it really there's there's a lot going on here, and I think this this will be a good way into uh, the role that trash plays in in this in this story. You write uh, quote garbage provoked the expression of a certain archaeological consciousness across multiple forms of cultural expression, as politicians, writers, and artists were forced to confront the personal and civilizational implications of emerging knowledge about just how long lived discarded matter previously assumed ephemeral would turn out to be. In other words, that that garbage is a problem, that, that trash is a problem in this world of goods. Can, can you develop that for us and tell us about how we see these kinds of cultural expressions? Yeah, absolutely. That's quite a, um, a dense uh, piece of text. I'll try to unpack it um, uh, as best I, uh, best I can. I want to start off with this idea of ephem- ephemerality. Um, a kind of key current in the uh, longer uh, argument about about things that provides a framework for this book is, um, you know, kind of what I've already uh, mentioned in relation to critiques of consumer society. This idea of a, of a, a kind of throwaway culture, a disposable um, uh, culture, you know, the idea that things need to be discarded and replaced to kind of keep the motor of um, consumption uh, running. Um my research showed that from, you know, as early as the 1920s and the, and the cultural critic Stuart Chase, um, you, you have uh, references to um, American culture's um, uh, requirement to, to keep goods moving through the hands of users as quickly as possible and heading for the dust heap or trash heap um, as quickly as possible. So, um there's a kind of longstanding um, tradition that focuses on this kind of disposability, ephemeral, ephemerality of um, uh, the goods that are, that are used and, and consumed. And trash or garbage, of course, is, um, at least as we understand it uh, now, is um, a kind of... Uh, material uh, renunciation of that idea of ephemerality because when we think about trash um now one of the things that we're remarkably and understandably and correctly um anxious about is just how long lived this stuff is um especially if we think about um to go back to oil that I've already uh, mentioned, if we think about the oil-derived um, plastics that, that uh, form such an important um, uh, part of the material culture of everyday life um, these days, there was a time when plastic was um, discussed by um, intellectuals and critics like Ronald Barth as being kind of characterized by ephemerality, this idea that it's barely there. These days, we think the opposite. We think the problem with um, uh, plastics is uh, is a uh, longevity and without um, um, effective uh, recycling schemes that this stuff is going to last forever. Well, it was only really in the um, 1980s that uh, the long-lived nature of uh, trash um, really was brought to uh, public understanding. Um, in the field of archaeology, um, archaeologists uh, in that period first started um, uh, excavating 20th century um, uh, landfill sites uh, and discovered that 
decomposition was hardly taking place at all. And the things that we'd been throwing away, or Americans had been throwing away um, for decades, were still remarkably intact when uh, the expectation had been that, you know, they would um, uh, decompose organically. And then later on in the 1980s, you have high-profile um, garbage events from medical waste washing up on the shores of uh, uh, New Jersey in um, the summer of 1987, I think it was. And then later the same summer, uh, you have this kind of um, incredible nationally covered event uh, of the Mobro 4000, a garbage barge with 3,000 tons of trash sailing up and down the Atlantic seaboard of the United States, unable to find anywhere to dock because um, the original deal uh, that had been signed, I think the trash was, uh, the original deal was that the trash came from New York City and was going to be disposed of somewhere in North Carolina. The original um, deal uh, fell through after the garbage barge had taken to sea. And rumors swirled around about the precise nature of the the waste on board. Um, bear in mind, this was in the midst of the um, AIDS crisis as well. And there was a lot of um, kind of public uh, uh, ignorance and anxiety about the uh, some of the uh, dangers inherent in medical waste, which is um, some of what was washing up on the New Jersey shores. Um, uh, that summer. Um, so the garbage barge is kind of sailing up and down uh, the uh, Atlantic seaboard with um, with nowhere to go. And what I argue in the chapter is that um, these kinds of uh, events combined, of course, with um, emerging climate science that, that, that looked at what um, uh, atmospheric pollutants were doing to, to climate change, uh, sorry to the to the to the world's atmosphere and producing um, climate change, <coughs> combined with um, marine biologists' first um, theorization of the existence of what we now know as the um, Great Pacific uh, garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific, this great mass of floating um, trash, and NASA scientists' concerns with um, the trash that kind of remained floating around space um, as a result of the various uh, uh, space missions that had uh, gone on since the um, 1960s. Trash became a public policy issue, um, uh, uh, a really pronounced public policy issue in the 1980s. You you see politicians uh, respond to that. Um, uh, Again, if you read the speeches of uh, uh, the fir- the first president um, <coughs> Bush, and uh, if you look at the 1988 uh, presidential uh, campaign, one of the things he attacks Dukakis for, um, interestingly enough, um, is for the polluted state of um, uh, Boston Harbor. And this was at the time when some of Bush's own uh, critics were saying that the garbage barge itself was a kind of metaphor for the dark underbelly of um, the materialistic um, uh, 1980s. What I want to argue, um, uh, producers of culture um, from artists like Julian Schnabel uh, to um, writers like uh, DeLillo and Marilyn Robinson, who published her first novel uh, in the 1980s, is that um, uh, 
uh, trash and 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 the things that are uh, that are thrown away and that are um, discarded by culture and in individuals became a marker for um, what I call archaeological uh, consciousness. Um, this concern about what it was that would be left of American civilization after that civilization um, ended. And I think the very kind of public profile of trash in the decade really um, encouraged this flaring of archaeological uh, consciousness that I trace across a range of of, uh, uh, texts, which takes the form of a deep, a deep, a deep anxiety about um, the value of of, uh, American culture and the sustainability of American civilization itself. Now, this archaeological consciousness, which is, you know, it's really a fascinating way to consider trash and, and the way that um, the way that these goods exist in, in space and time and, and in ecology. You do suggest that uh, that Americans made uh, what you call an uneasy peace with stuff. Um, and, you know, you discussed this through some of the work of Nicholson Baker and you know, an idea of an epistemological respectability attached to everyday things. Now, clearly, the the arguments over stuff, uh, you know, do not stop as they are they are a long running sort of strand of American culture. But could you maybe discuss the way that by the end of the 1980s, by the end of your period here in 1991, we do see some changes or you know this this uneasy piece? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think. I mean, one way to answer it is to is to um, um, just dwell on um, uh, one further aspect of the archaeological consciousness that I was just mentioning is that that consciousness itself has a kind of uh, effervescence, right? It 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 flares at a moment where trash becomes visible, like in the case of the Mobro Four Thousand, but then disappears when trash as it normally is is invisible right we we kind of um we get rid of it we put it uh uh away um uh in places that for the most part remain unseen under the ground or um in the ocean um so it's fascinating to me that that uh archaeological uh consciousness and the kind of anxieties that the trash provoked and still provoke tend not to last themselves. And so, you know, when I, when I, when I think about the work of um, Nicholson Baker um, at the end of the, of the 1980s, I consider it representative of a kind of, um, uh, yeah, a kind of, a kind of piece that American culture seemed to have made with, with things in the sense that, in some discursive spheres, at least, including in scholarly uh, uh, work, there seemed to be a, a kind of significant move away from uh, the well-rehearsed denunciations of the materialism of American life and the well-rehearsed critiques of, a, of um, consumer culture um, towards uh, a, a kind of turn... Uh, towards things and towards designed objects as worthy of legitimate um, scholarly uh, consideration and even 
respect. I mean, this is the era when um, Henry Petrosky first starts publishing um, on uh, the small things of everyday life, um, including a book called The Pencil from 1989, where you know he unravels uh, in the form of this, he unravels from this simple everyday object to the kind of complex history of uh, design and production. And what I'm trying to argue there is that this is the this is the era when um, uh, what we when a lot of the when a lot of the work that the material turn in the humanities of later decades um, uh, 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 that that turn rests on a lot of the work that, that started emerging from the nineteen eighties um, work like. Um, you know, kind of popular books on single objects, whether it's uh, uh, the pencil or um, uh, the potato. or um, It's also a time when anthropologists like um, Daniel Miller um, start moving away from critiques of consumption to, um, uh, con- to uh, consider um, in a less critical way the way that, you know, consumption is vital to... Um, uh, all our lives and the way that kind of structures various uh, relationships. And I find I find um, Baker's work interesting in this respect because uh, it seems to me that his his writing of that um, period, um, his debut novel is a mezzanine. I don't know if uh, how familiar that would be to people listening to this, but it's a slim novel that. Um, details uh, uh, thoughts that uh, an office worker by the name of Howie has over the course of a single lunch break. And what's remarkable about those thoughts is how a lot of them um, seem to be attached to or related to the everyday paraphernalia um, of uh, contemporary life, precisely the kind of things that um, someone like Petrosky had had started publishing on in that um, era a lot of literary critics when faced with this you know uh this debut by um uh baker wanted to assume it seemed that he was being uh ironic in some uh respects but i wanted to argue that um in fact we should read him as not being ironic at all and that what he's trying to trying to show is that um perhaps surprisingly that you know intellectual lives of considerable um uh uh, depth and um, interest uh, are indeed still lived among um, the paraphernalia of uh, everyday contemporary life. And it seems to me a useful antidote, um, or Baker's novels of the late 1980s and early 1990s, a, a useful antidote or a kind of um, counterpoint to um, the popular denunciation of the mindless materialism of the era, because what I wanted to, what I want to suggest about Baker's work is it actually kind of represents um, a transition point towards a more kind of mindful materialism, where across these different um, discursive spheres, people start taking things and the meaning of things um, uh, a little bit more um, seriously and respectfully than they uh, than they had before. And in the scholarly arena, you know, that builds up into the material turn of the kind of 1990s and um, first decade of the the 2000s, which, um, um, you know, in a way kind of cleared the the way for my own 
uh, analysis of the culture of this period. And so, so what we have then is, uh, in some ways, a very long continuity of an ongoing debate in American culture, uh, and yet some very specific to the 1980s uh, kinds of changes. Now, can you can you tell us about um, your uh, upcoming work? Are you going to keep working on the 1980s, or are you moving into other times or places or topics? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm working on a, a, a different uh, project and a, and a different um, uh, topic at the moment. I'm examining um, uh, the way that uh, narrative culture since um, uh, 9-11 um, has engaged with the notion of crisis in uh, American life. The period that I'm interested in is really from 9-11 up to and including um, the supposed crisis in democracy represented by the election of uh, Trump in um, 2016. This is a period in which it seems to me um, crisis discourse is more or less everywhere uh, that you uh, turn, whether you think about the uh, national security crisis precipitated by 9-11, the financial crisis of 2008, or as I say, the political crisis and the crisis of liberal democracy or the liberal order um, supposedly experienced um, right now. So, uh, yeah, the idea of this um, uh, this project is is going to be to look at the ways. Again, you know, I want to I want to try to engage uh, with as broad a range of cultural artifacts and materials as possible, and look at the ways in which. Um, uh, everything from fiction to film to uh, uh, the new narrative form of the of the podcast has engaged with this idea of crisis and the extent to which um, it's helped to to uh, uh, I think problematize the um, uh, kind of repeated. Uh, invocations of crisis that, that seem so prominent in American discourse right now. Well, we certainly look forward to hearing a lot more on that. It certainly feels like a permanent emergency. And, you know, when you, when you think about the, the garbage barge sailing up and down the East Coast, that, that seems like a, an important step in the way to, to considering a world of almost permanent crisis. Uh, Tim Jelfs, Assistant Professor of American Studies at the University of Groningen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the book is The Argument About Things in the 1980s, Goods and Garbage in an Age of Neoliberalism. West Virginia University Press, 2018. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, David.